0: I would invite you to open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. We're looking at the same uh, group of verses that we looked at last week, but I didn't finish it out. And I think that the Lord wants us to be there uh, a couple of weeks in a row because we are doing that. And so if you missed last week, I'll recap a little bit, um, flying into the second point, but... There's a lot of misunderstanding about prayer and praying, and it can get really, really discouraging really fast if you think that God is neglecting you and not really listening to your prayers because you're not seeing results. And this text promises results, but you have to understand this text in its context and with a full explanation of meaning so that you don't get discouraged in your prayer life. We need to pray. We need each other. We need to be praying for each other. We need to pray for our own lives and our own holiness. We need to pray for our kids and grandkids and friends and loved ones to to know Christ. And we need to pray in faith. And the Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount Uh, really unpacks the heart behind the Lord's Prayer, which he's talked through and given us the template. The blueprint for praying is in Matthew 6, and now this is praying in the context, those things in the context of a real, vibrant, authentic relationship. Because you're God's child. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. You are part of his family, and that's the most authentic and meaningful relationship that we can possibly have on this earth and for all of eternity. And so God loves you. And I want to just read that in this context. So listen, as I read these verses, Matthew seven, beginning at verse seven, ask, and it will shout start again, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find knock, and it will be open to you for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened Learned last week that there are some temptations that arise when you read a text like this. There's assurances. Man, God is going to answer my prayer. But there's temptations that I think we need to talk out loud about where you can get discouraged because you're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking, you're wanting resolve, and it's just crickets. You just aren't hearing anything or you don't think God is aware of what you're saying or cares at all. These are temptations that need to be combated. You might start to put the burden on you, not on God, and say, I'm not praying enough or not praying earnestly enough or without real faith. And these mental gymnastics can create a kind of a vacuum that's filled with, with error sometimes. And in the church We talked last week, and I'm not going to fill this out again this week, but we talked about the Word of Faith movement, which tries to fill the vacuum and answer the question of, is God concerned about my prayer life, about me at all? And it answers it with a Word of Faith, name it, claim it, false teaching, where it puts the prayer in the driver's seat in terms of what he or she believes he should have. And basically... It's a false teaching, a dominionist teaching that tells you that you can declare things to be so and play the role of a little God and assume that God has given you this power to demand and require things to happen, almost calling them into existence as if you are Godlike. It's very enticing for people who don't really have a rich prayer life or understand the true posture of prayer That is described here by Jesus that we are supposed to take. God or Christ who is God teaches us that the posture of prayer is not one of dominance and being a dominionist but is the posture of a child. Begging bread of a father who loves him. A child who is in need and coming with humility in a posture who's saying I'm meek, I'm mild, I'm lowly. I'm perhaps hurt by things that are going on in my life. Maybe you're going through some persecution, even maybe not violent persecution, but subtle persecutions for your faith in inner family persecution or at the workplace or job or whatever. You're experiencing that, or perhaps you're in need of money provision just to make ends meet. I understand that. Maybe you're in a position where there's health concerns. You go, I don't know which way is up. I don't know which doctor to call upon or ask um, for help from. And so I go to God as the great provider, the great physician, the great healer, and I'm asking and I'm seeking and I'm knocking and I'm wanting an answer. Well, the dominionist would say, you need to exercise enough faith to get that done. And if it's not happening, then it's your fault. Whereas Jesus is teaching, we are to come to God, asking, seeking, and knocking, come what may and trusting him as he is going to provide. But see, the way that he provides is often unclear to us. It's often unclear, and we need to understand from Scripture that God is providing for us in the context of a real, genuine, authentic father-to-son, father-to-daughter relationship, and he's providing in the way that he wants to provide. Oftentimes when we pray, the answer is yes. We're praying according to his will, and he just gives us what we were desiring, and we go glory to God. But then sometimes we pray, and the answer is, like it was to Paul in Second Corinthians 7, No, no, it's good for you to grow through the trial, through the circumstances in the way that I've designed. So the answer is no. And then sometimes the answer is pause and wait and wait. And the answer doesn't come for a long time. And then it finally comes and go, wow, I prayed for that for years and years. And here's the answer. And then sometimes here's a fourth category. It's the answer of, I'm gonna give you something that you weren't even asking for that's going to meet the need that you're asking about. You see that and it comes in a different way and you go, wow, sort of the old country, country Western song, you know, careful what you pray for, that kind of thing. I mean, you were praying for the wrong thing, but you were praying and God gave you the right thing that was right for you so that you could grow therein. And so that's what this is asking and and answering in the context of prayer. The context of prayer we have to ask the question if jesus is giving us these promises but does not provide exactly in the way that we are asking for him to provide then how can this promise be true more importantly how can i live this promise live by faith in confidence with god as he provides in the way that he wants to provide well first of all correct you're thinking if it's wrong With this first principle, true prayer reacts to what God wants, not God reacting to what we want. True prayer, real prayer, prayer that's in this posture of a father to a son relationship is not, it's not God reacting to what we want where we're saying, oh God, give me this, give me that. I'm praying hard enough. I'm praying earnestly enough. I'm praying with enough faith. And so God's in heaven, wringing his hands, looking down at you going, okay, okay. Little Tommy or Johnny or Sarah or Susie, I'll do what you need. Stumbling around in an attic, like a, like an old man. That's, that's not God. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is, he is stayed and steady and he's the rock who doesn't change. And he loves you and he's personal and he's intimately acquainted with all of your needs food, clothing, and shelter, and he's providing out of the overflow of his character, um, not because we've changed his mind, but because God is working with our minds and our souls. We're reacting to him as we pray. He's not reacting to us at all. And that's true prayer. You have to unlock this promise in light of the relationship that we have in God, where he's our father. If you look back at chapter six, again, um, verse 8 talking about not praying like the pagans verse 7 with empty phrases and many words so that we'll be heard you're drumming up trying to use chanting and you know um, some kind of mantra to get God to listen to you that's paganism and verse 8 says do not be like them don't pray like that don't pray like a pagan why for your father knows what you need before you ask him he knows what you need. This is, this is the banner statement going into the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be known on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, you know, this lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. All these requests that are guidelines to pray for real things that are going on in our lives, right? All of that has to be done in the context of God already knows what we need before we're even asking for it. What he wants you to do and me to do is come to a place of resignation before our father where we say, I give. Lord, you've got to provide in the way you're going to provide. Lord, I've been harboring this sin against that person. I've been bitter and upset. I let it go. Lord, I've been tempted in this way. Satan is leading me down this path. Enough. God, I give up. I give up. Lord, you know what's going on. You know where I need to be. I'm reacting to you. I'm not calling you or requiring you or trying to demand you to react to me. I'm reacting to you. I'm yielding to your sovereignty. Lord, provide. Lord, we need this. And God just wants that out of your life through prayer. That's why we ask. That's why we seek. That's why we... Knock, 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 so that God will just provide. If you look at Matthew 6, going over to verse 31, Therefore, do not be anxious. This is all in the anxiety passage, verses 25 to 34. Life is about food and clothing and shelter. And verse 31 People are saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And then it says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. So everybody, Jews primarily were the ones listening to Jesus on the mountainside as he gave this sermon. He says, look, everybody's thinking about these things. The Gentiles too. he says, and your heavenly father who knows you, your heavenly father, he's up there. Heavenly father knows that you need them all. You need them all. All you got to do is seek first the kingdom. Don't try to nail God down with how he's going to do it. Just seek his kingdom, be holy, seek his righteousness and let God provide. This is, it sets the conditions for God to bless you because he's working in your life. He's got higher agendas than you have for yourself. Think about that. God has higher agendas than you have for yourself. You think you got your goals nailed down. I, and I'm looking at myself here. I think I've got my own goals nailed down for what life should be like, how it should play out. And God has a bigger agenda. He wants you to be like Jesus through the life that He's planned out for you, and He wants you to pray through it. He wants you to relate to Him as a son, as a daughter, to Him as you progress through the journey that He's laid out. Before you. And so what is prayer not? First of all, prayer is not pragmatic based. These are review points from last week. It's not man centered. It's not something that we just demand or require. It's not like negotiating a business deal with God where God has to react to our negotiation. Number two, it's not precision based. What I mean by that is we can't know exactly the precise way that God's going to answer our prayer. We just don't know. And so when you pray, we pray in the biblical precision, what God precisely calls us to pray for and pray about in the Lord's prayer. And we can look at Paul's prayers. We look for how he prayed for the door to be opened in his ministry or for words to be given to him as he would speak. And then he would move through life and he would, you know, he, he won Lydia to Christ. He won the Philippian jailer to Christ by being put in prison. He won people to Christ at Areopagus in the idol rich Athenian culture, he didn't know exactly unless god you know specifically prophetically told him at times but but the way that he modeled his christian life that we're supposed to live in is we just we just go with the flow you live your life you do your job you go to work. You, you live with the family that, that you live with, with the people that are around you. And you, you approach needs and, and life circumstances and situations in a God consciousness where you pray without ceasing and say, God, provide for our needs. Provide um, a word for me to say in this conversation. Give me a gracious attitude. Let me be humble to you as I approach this situation or that. And you watch God's providence electrify your life and you'll be like man god is all in the details of everything that's going on but what i mean is by saying it's not precision based we don't know god's will until it's happened and so we have to be careful not to try to um sketch out exactly the way we think god should answer our prayers one pastor said in a word in his word god gives enough truth truth for us to be responsible but enough mystery for us to be dependent 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 there's a lot that we don't know. Deuteronomy 29:29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Romans 11:33, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. We pray for wisdom. We want God to show us how to live, but not exactly what's going to happen to us the next time. Thirdly, thirdly is being providence-based. And that's, it's not pragmatic-based. It's not precision-based, but it is providence-based. And we trust the Lord. We trust the Lord for how he'll provide Every step of the way, and I've hit on that. Just again, verse 7, by way of review, asking, seeking, and knocking is present tense. It's ongoing. It's part of your Christian life. It's praying without ceasing. And then it says, it will be given. At the end, it will be opened. These are future passive verbs. The idea is that it's already in the mind of God what he's going to do for you. We're just synchronizing our prayers with his will. And God beautifully and perfectly provides in the way that he intends to do it how it works. Things are opening up in our lives as we trust him. We stay constant in prayer and we don't run out of gas. Why? Because we're trusting in him, not us. If you trust yourself in your own energy to keep yourself praying, you'll run out of gas really, really quickly. If you trust God in your prayer life and you approach him in a a reverential way, but in a way where you are resting in him then you can be sustained in prayer. You will be sustained in prayer. Your prayer life will take off. It will strengthen. It will go. God's prayer is based on the sovereignty of God, trusting the sovereignty of God. That's biblical prayer. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of divine omnipotence. That's Charles Spurgeon. And our prayers are within the providence of God. If you look at uh, just... Quickly at verse 8, it says, For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, find, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. You see that everyone and the one and to the one. You know what? what Jesus is doing here is he's not giving a formula like the old prayer of Jabez. I don't know if you ever were wrapped up in that. Some formula to say something as a ritual for God to react to us for for there to be some sort of outcome because we did it the right way if you ask seek and knock like you do it enough no what jesus is saying here is he's identifying here that everyone that prays by faith god is going to answer within the context of that relationship that's what he means everyone does that mean anyone that prays this formula as if you can just you know pray a prayer on the back of a card and that's going to get you saved no that's not praying praying is Trusting and relating to God in the context of this kind of relationship. Everyone that does that, everyone that does, God is providing in that way. We distinguish every other child, if you have a child who's on the soccer field, from our own children. Why? Because we love our kids. If you ever watched uh, Pee Wee Soccer, you know, it's a little swarm of bees that are all chasing the ball, right? And all the other kids out on the field are black and white, but your kid's in color, right? In technicolor, or, you know, digital um, clarity. You see that kid, and that's how you're watching your kid in a sport compared to everyone else. Well, that's how Jesus looks at you. That's how God sees you. You say, I don't have that relationship anymore because I've sinned. I've done too Too many things to deny myself that kind of care. No, God cares for you even when you're down on the dirt, even when you've stumbled and fallen. He cares and wants to relate to you. He wants you to ask. He wants you to seek. He wants you to find. Not that you're drumming something up for God to do. He just wants you. He wants you. He wants your relationship. So we relate to him in this way. But a lot of times we run out of gas We turn our attention on ourselves, and so Jesus counters that with the next few verses, and this brings up our second point. Again, prayer is not to move God, but to be moved by God. And then number two, true prayer means God defines what is good for our lives. True prayer puts God in the driver's seat to define what is good for our lives. A lot of times as parents... Uh, We'll be approached by kids and they'll say, I want this. This will be really good for me. And we know right away, that's not good for you, but this will be good for you. And so that's the posture that we have to take. And that's where Jesus leads us in this next couple verses. These two hypotheticals, verses 9 and 10. Look at this. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? This is begging um the listener to question their own heart for a second i want to i want to kind of prick your conscience if i can hopefully the holy spirit will do you ever doubt god you say no i'd never do that i'm a christian i'm born again i would never doubt god what about the way you live is that an indication that you might be doubting god What about if you were to measure how much you wish that you prayed versus how much you actually pray? Is there any sense in which that could be doubting God? Let me put it this way. Do you ever, let me put it more precisely. Do you ever doubt the goodness of God in your life? You know, God is God and I'm saved, but I don't necessarily believe that he's being good to me. Well, that's what Jesus is asking you to search out in your own heart. Am I doubting the goodness of God? Am I doubting the character of God? Because life is hard. Life's not working out the way I want it to. God's not giving me exactly what I'm asking for, exactly when I want it, exactly the way I want it. And so perhaps you're doubting the goodness of God. And so Jesus is using these hypothetical scenarios for you to ask that question. Because once you lock in on the true character of God, that he's good, as we sing a lot of times, he's good all of the time that he's your good father who loves you, once you lock in that way, that will fuel your prayer life. That's where everything starts, is your perception of the character of God. Do you believe God is good? If you believe God is good, then you will pray to this God. That's what the point is here. A.W. Tozer put it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us our perception really determines how we relate to him because if you believe he's good then you believe he's interested in your needs you believe he cares about your food your clothing your shelter your relationships your highs your lows your circumstances your hard situations God loves you why because he's good because he's good he's got your best interests at heart when life gets difficult it's hard to believe God is good Life was difficult for the religious Jews. They were sitting there listening to Jesus and Jesus was relating to them in a way that they were not used to the Jews and the Jewish mind of that time viewed God in a distant way. And the Jews were God's chosen people, but they had been led astray. There were many who were rejecting Jesus, not catching on to the Messiah, rejecting the new covenant, not not seeing it for what was dawning in their eyes. They were trapped in religiosity. They were trapped under Pharisees, which was basically the teaching of hardcore legalism. By a show of hands, who grew up in a legalistic background? No, don't put your hand up. But I mean, listen, the reason you're laughing ha ha, ha is because many of you did. Many of you did. Right. It's do's and don'ts. It's not believe it's behave. (laughs) It's behave. And look, I call my kids to behave, too. But it's at the heart of it. It's about heart change. It's about truly knowing Jesus for who he is. It's loving the Lord, your God, heart, mind, soul and strength, loving your neighbors yourself. That's Old Testament. But then that true Old Testament, Old Covenant um, reality had been twisted and distorted into legalism which is a control cult-like spell that people that's cast by satan himself and was being um, propagated through the pharisees and jesus is combating that saying no address god not as a distant figure that's going to zap you if you don't make the right sacrifice or obey the right laws or commands love the lord god who is your father See, father was a new name for God. I mean, it was used a few times in the Old Testament in a corporate sense. But the fathering, fatherly care of God is manifest and displayed through the way Jesus related to God. So Jesus calling God Papa um, is our example for us to call God our father. The one who loves us. It gets really no more complicated than that in terms of how to relate to God. You relate to God as your father, just like a child relates reverentially to his earthly father. We do so by faith. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We understand all of who God is, but we relate to him as our father. This is why you got to come back tonight for round two, where Pete's going to bring the word with worship in the round on God. We relate to him as father. J.I. Packer put it this way. The Christian name for God is father, father. We're adopted children. The, uh, Romans chapter um, eight speaks of how we relate to God and we cry to him as Abba. We cried to him as our daddy. And you say, my prayer life is weak. It's empty. Well, are you coming to God as a loving father? Not just as a duty, not just as a discipline, not just as a time slot, that's given to God in that way, but really pouring your heart out, taking some time and saying, Lord, God, you're my father. Tell me what to do. I don't know precisely how to pray. I don't know the angle to take. I don't know the answer to this question. And you know the question's burning in your mind and your heart right now. But Lord, I lay this at your feet. Give me the way out. Let me persevere. Be my father. You are my father. Let me relate to you as your child. I mean, that's, that's what this that's what these promises are about. God as father is going to come through for you. Do you believe it? That's what gives fuel to your prayer life. And you'll believe it if you believe he is good. If you believe he is good. Understanding him in terms of personal intimacy. Well, the Jew, they had a distorted view of God and the Greek and Gentile mind. Also had a view that was, that was twisted and not God. And the pagan view, you have the religious view, right, that's legalism, and we deal with that in bad teaching and churches that lead you the wrong way. But then you have worldliness that we deal with in the media today that basically wants to make you into little gods where you're in control of your own life. And what the Greeks did is they created the pantheon of gods, which were little gods that were personifications of of man's strengths and weaknesses almost like a pantheon of superheroes that reflect to us reflect back to us our own personalities that we put on a pedestal and then they'll zap us sometimes because they're whimsical just like people and today we worship our celebrities, and people give towards media and giving towards celebrities, and it's a form of worship. It's real worship where people put people on pedestals and live in light of those personifications. We all know that, um, you know, uh, the the celebrity is really just dressed up in makeup and put on a stage, and you know, there's all kinds of photoshopping or whatever people do to make people look worthy of our worship right? That's Greco-Roman false theology. That's, that's bad to do, to worship people. Um, and, you know, there's a story of Zeus that, that pulled a fast one on Aurora, the goddess of dawn. She fell in love with a mortal youth named Tithonus, and she begged to be granted to live forever, and Zeus granted this request. But out of the proviso that uh, Tithonus be doomed for an eternity of aging, it's the idea that God will pull a fast one on on them and that personification of that whimsical God is where people are sometimes. They don't believe they believe they have gone too far and God's just gonna zap them. And Jesus wants to pick the listener up off the pavement. That might be you, or you say, I've been trusting in God, just like I'm trying to worship a celebrity. Or I 've been suffocated in religion, just like um, a Jew had been, who had been misguided, and God is just this corporate, distant thing. But now I need to return to my heavenly Father, and what does that relationship look like? Well, it looks like verse It looks like verse nine. It looks like verse nine. Which one of you? The word you here is very personal. Which one of you? Jesus just looking at the crowd. If his son asks him for bread? We'll give him a stone. What's he saying here? Bread here is not focaccia bread or, you know, some French bread or you get a Panera bread, you know, from the lower 48 because we don't have that. Anyway, Panera bread, it's like, oh, I really want that daddy. You know, I know I've had a meal here and I'm fully satisfied, but I can have some bread too. Or a waiter can have some more bread. That is not what's going on here. Bread is the means for survival. It would be the scenario is your child is coming up to you and they're starving. And you have bread, and you say, "Here's bread." You know, whenever I um, am, you know, making some breakfast or whatever at my house, we've got a lot of kids that are, are hungry and they're scavenging for food. Like on a Saturday morning, I'm frying up some eggs or whatever, and, and I, you know, i like, "Man, I'm gonna give my wife some some breakfast," and so I'll make that and, and hand it over to Judy. But if I haven't served the kids yet, they're like, "Oh man, those eggs look really good." She gets like a third, she gets a bite of those eggs because she's given them out because it's natural to want to feed your children. Well, God wants to make sure that our needs are met. He cares about you paternally. Do you get that? He loves you that much and in that way. He cares about your survival. He cares about your needs. And that's the idea here. You're gonna give your child Bread, because they need to live. Bread is what's the request that's in the Lord's Prayer. Give us our daily bread, verse 11. It's eating to survive. It's eating to live. It's daily bread, meaning this is the daily sustenance for life. So as we come to God, we come with this attitude of dependence, and God provide for us. And as we ask for that provision, he's going to give us bread. He won't give us a stone. I think sometimes we're doubting the goodness of God and saying, God, I wanted a piece of bread. But you gave me something that's going to knock my teeth out if I put it in my mouth. You're going to give me something that's going to kill me. I asked for the next verse. I asked for a fish. I just needed a fish to be able to eat for some protein. and, And you gave me instead something that will literally attack me, not just be harmful to me, but could kill me with lethal poison. I asked for a fish and you gave me a serpent. Well, Jesus is saying, look, God doesn't work that way. If you're asking for a fish, will he give you a serpent? Is he going to give you something that is harmful for your life? Well, you need to answer these questions in view of something that's very important to understand. God is working with you in view of a higher agenda than your physical needs. Yes, he provides for what we shall eat, what we shall wear. He provides these things. But he wants to provide in a way that grows us into being like Jesus. And that's super important to understand. God cares about you. He cares about your physical life. But he cares about your spiritual life more. And we have to embrace the promises that God is providing in view of his greater agenda. And understanding that he is good. You know when trials and circumstances get tough it's very easy to doubt God, you might turn in your Bibles over to James one. I'm just going to glance at um, a couple verses really quick. James one, verse 13. This is all talking in the the context of James one, which is about trials and pressures and things that hit you that are out of the blue that you wish weren't in your life. I've got some trials that, you know, I'm feeling on my shoulders right now. You probably have some trials and pressure on your life and shoulders and God through James and James 1 is saying you need to view that pressure as a means for God to grow you and make you more like Jesus he puts more pressure on you so that more trust and dependence within you will grow and that's James 1 1 through 4 but then as the text goes down there is a sense in which James is curtailing and exposing a temptation where people will start to blame God for their own sin because life is so hard. You say, I would never do that. Oh, we do. When we act out, when we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we're short with people, when we're performance oriented, all these sins are indirect ways of blaming God rather than trusting God through trials. First of all, we begin to doubt God. And James 1 talks about being um, a double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways, tossed to and fro like on the wind and the waves. And then in James 1.13, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Sin cannot come from God. He can't have an evil motive to knock you off kilter. That's not what he's doing. He puts pressure on us so that we will grow in the way that we need to grow. There are times when I am desirous as a father and a parent to bail my kid out to take their job up from them. When I'm like, hey, do this, figure that out, unscrew that, put that back together, and I'll just jump in and do it. And uh, for them, and that's good to do sometimes. And sometimes, as a as a parent, it's better to let them sweat it out, to learn, to grow, to exercise intellectual and physical muscles to get something done. Even if it's done at a subpar level, it's better that they fought and struggled to get through it, so they could grow. And that's that's what God is doing for us when He allows us to stay in a trial. But it says. Don't When you're tempted by God, don't believe that God is the one who's tempting you because God cannot be tempted from evil or tempts anyone. So we don't doubt, we don't accuse, and we don't blame God. Why? James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is good. He's immovably good. That's what verse 17 says. He cannot not be good. He is always good. And so we embrace his goodness and receive good things from him. And even if we don't understand it, we have to believe that he is good and that his higher agenda is to make us like Christ. Well, now let's finally look at verse 11. And this, again, is the ultimate, the ultimate point that Jesus is pushing is that God is your father and he is good. He's far greater in his goodness than we could ever be look at this if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him now how politically correct is it to look at someone and say if you then who are evil you evil people you wouldn't even like it if i said that right but we know it's true from scripture right the word ponyros in the original language i mean it's evil And he's talking to believers and he's talking to the outliers there that were unbelievers. But he's just saying, look inside. And as believers, we know the Holy Spirit is there to convict us of our evil, to help us fight evil, to to kill sin in our lives. But we still know that we are depraved and that the remaining flesh is in us until we are ultimately glorified in heaven. We're evil. I'm evil. That's real. You then who are evil. In our politically correct world, everybody's masking you know, that reality from themselves by making everything about race, everything about victimization, everything about, you know, this kind of culture of, of woe is me and it's all your fault and it's never my fault. Well, the Bible calls us to take responsibility for ourselves, right? God is holy and his holiness mirror reflects back to us that we are evil. So we embrace that and we go, but nevertheless, Jesus goes, okay, you're evil. But you still take care of your kids, even though you're all about you, even though your agenda is you, you still provide. It's still an instinct to provide. And that's what highlights the words how much more. God is building and Christ is building in his sermon, the great disparity between our sinfulness and the way we provide and the way God's holiness, because he's our heavenly father is so much more than the way we could ever provide. And he does it so much better. Why? Cause he's good. God is good. If you want it, this is the God is good sermon and he's always good to you. He is our father. He's our good God. We have a morally detestable condition and yet, at the same time, we give to our kids. Understanding that God is our Father who is in heaven is an amazing encouragement. I think sometimes we, we say God's holiness or his heavenly nature is uh, you know it's such a disparity that it, it's almost scary to think about God who's holy and we are sinful. If I really think about my sinfulness and being evil, I don't want to go to God for anything at all. But instead of that, just say, look. I can do the best I can providing, but God is the great provider. And the reason His provision is perfect is because He's holy. God cannot deny Himself, He cannot deny His nature. And His holiness is why He can give us good things. He's unchanging. Look, when there's the promise He will never leave us or forsake us, that's because He is holy. He's not whimsical, He's steady. His commitments are unbreakable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. High debt, nothing. Angels, principal, nothing. God loves us. You're his child. You're adopted. The grace of God has been given to you. It's perfect. This is the way I wrote a summary statement. Just listen to this. Just listen for a second. Just to try to frame it all up. Holiness is what creates an incredible disparity between our sinfulness and God's perfection. And yet this same holiness creating that same disparity is the very reason God continues to bless us even when we are sinful. God's holiness is why he will never forsake us. God is faithful because God cannot deny himself, which means he cannot be anything but faithful to you. He'll always be faithful. He'll always give much more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's the prayer, right? That's Paul's prayer where he said, you know, God, um, God will give you exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. It's amazing. It's amazing. We just have to wait on the Lord and see his goodness. As a parent of six, i had a lot of times, a lot of occasions I do just about every day where my kids ask me for things. And they want things all the time. And some things are good and some things are not good for them. And a lot of times I don't know what to give them. And I try to measure what I give one of my children, whether an adult child, a teenage child, or a younger child. I measure that in view of what's best for them. But sometimes when I don't know what to give them, I say, let's just wait And I'm not clear yet on what I should do or not do. So let's both go to our heavenly father now. And I'm challenging you to go to God as your father and ask him for timing on when I may or may not relent. (laughs) But we make it about God. That's exactly the same position we are to be in as adults with God when we want something. God I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your sovereignty. I'm not trying to get you to react to me. I want to react to you. I don't want to doubt your goodness. I will now cede and humble myself before you to your goodness. That's why he's the promise keeper. That's why he fulfills every promise. And he fulfills them according to his plans. We respond to him, not the reverse. And he gives us according to what he defines Goodness, he gives us our needs that way. And his higher agenda is our holiness. We ask, we seek, we knock in terms of God's providential care.